Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the head of interest rate strategy for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. We now go to Aberdeen's Jonathan Mundillo. He is the head of North American Fixed Income. Jonathan, thanks very much for coming on Fick Focus. Ira, thanks for happening, having me. Really appreciate it. So talk a little bit about your mandate, what type of money you manage, and, uh, and you, know, any, um, you know, anything about your firm that you think that some of our listeners would be interested in. Yeah, sure. So I'd say at Aberdeen, we manage close to half a trillion dollars in assets globally, uh, of which almost $200 billion is focused on fixed income. So our capabilities and expertise really runs the gambit both globally as well as regionally. Now, as head of fixed income in North America, I oversee our investment teams that are tasked with managing both public markets as well as a growing book of private markets fixed income on behalf of our clients. Uh, In terms of the primary asset classes that we manage in the region, our focus is on corporate investment grade, global and US high yield, uh, and municipal debt, as well as, as I said, a growing U.S. private placements business in both corporate private placements as well as infrastructure private placements. Now, um, I'd say our focus is really on three key areas in the region, the first of which is domestic investment management and research on behalf of a domestic client base. So U.S. mutual funds, uh, separately managed accounts, as well as segregated mandates for U.S specific clients. The second focus being investment management and research on behalf of non-domestic clients, again, a global organization uh, that we're focused on in the region. So CCAV structures, segregated accounts for mainly large institutional uh, pension and insurance uh, clients. And then the last focus really is providing investment research coverage for U.S. fixed income issuers uh, that our global portfolio managers may invest in across the different regions in Europe, UK, and APEC. So global credit portfolios, multi-asset, uh, global sustainable investment solutions as well. And then in terms of our client base, um, really diversified, I'd say, uh, including both retail investors, small and large money centers, high net worth investors, as well as larger, as I said, multinational institutions, pensions, insurance, etc. So let's talk a little bit, maybe to start about the differences between investing in, say, um, you know, U.S. public corporates and some of those private placements you made. So is is there a significantly different investment process between? you know, having organizations that you're investing in that have, you know, public information, make all kinds of SEC filings versus maybe some of the more private placements. And, you know, they're not necessarily small firms either. They're just firms that might not have public equity outstanding. So can you maybe talk a little bit about differences there? Yeah, sure. I I think our pedigree and our history on the public market side certainly lends itself well to making loans and investments on the private market side uh, in the sense that, to your point, 
you know, some of the issuers may be the same in the public markets as they are in the private markets, and they're just looking for simple diversification of their lender base. And or you're talking about the same sectors. Uh, you're talking about maybe issuers that are competitors to some of the issuers that you would traditionally find in the public markets. And then I'd also say that the lines are are you know slowly being blurred to those traditional public market issuers, as I said, that are now looking to access the private markets um, <clears throat> for for those loans. And I think that we've seen that increase uh, as a result of a number of different things. But first and foremost, um, I'd say the interest rate volatility that we've seen over the past three years that has been elevated in a post-COVID world in the public markets. So uh, one of the benefits that the private markets offers issuers is not only diversification of those lenders, but also I think certainty of execution uh, tends to be a bit better in the private markets. From an investor's standpoint, when you're deploying capital to the private markets, I think there are similarities to assessing the fundamental risks to the issuer that you would find on the public market side within the private markets. But I think the key differences are uh, a greater emphasis on documentation, uh, as these are not public documents, a greater emphasis on ensuring that the right structures are in place at time of issuance or at time of making that loan, because this is an illiquid asset, right? It's not something that, you know, one, two, three years down the line, uh, you have an expectation that you are provided with market liquidity. So I think it's ensuring that the I's are dotted and that the T's are crossed, um, you know, when you're looking to deploy into the private markets is certainly uh, paramount relative to what I think you'd expect in the due diligence process on the public market side. So obviously any, any of your clients who need liquidity, you're not probably not in the private markets, but if you're an insurance company or an endowment or something with a very long liability profile, you might uh, have an asset like a private, I would imagine. Absolutely. And that's where we've seen a growing book of our business coming from different pension schemes, insurance clients, looking to match those long-term uh, liabilities. Because I think the one benefit to the private markets, or one of the benefits to the private markets relative to the public markets is you're compensated for that illiquidity. And if you're an investor that doesn't need liquidity, sure, you know, it makes sense to pick up an extra 40, 50, 60 basis points in pure yield um, with a comparable credit quality issuer. Great. So why don't we, though, turn now a little bit to the public markets and talk about, you know, where you are within your generally in fixed income uh, asset allocation. And, you know, so what are your thoughts about um, things like corporate credit or fixed income versus uh, versus other risk assets that might um, uh, that might be appealing to investors? And, and, and what's your view over the next, say, six to 12 months? Yeah, I think fixed incomes lagged a bit over the last month or two, just given the rate moves that we've seen. And a lot of that, a lot of what was driving that was the uh, was the debt ceiling um, headlines, obviously. But I think just broadly speaking, we really like fixed income, especially relative to equities at the moment. You know, when you look at corporate bond yields at five and a quarter to five and a half percent, 
high-yield corporate bonds north of 8%, and you look at an earnings yield on the S&P 500 in similar territory, I think over the next you know three to five years, uh, to be able to lock in at those yields, fixed income looks really attractive relative to equities. I'd say that within fixed income, though, just given the sort of macro backdrop, we certainly have a quality uh, a quality bias. So we like investment grade corporate bonds. I'd say higher quality, high yield debt. Uh, I think with the one caveat, we do run municipal debt here at uh, here at Aberdeen, of which I'm a portfolio manager on some of those strategies. Uh, is the one area where we tend to like maybe the lower quality names within that asset class. Uh, to tax sensitive investors. It looks attractive for a number of different reasons, yield being one on a taxable equivalent basis, but also it's a high quality asset class uh, that really benefits from strong fundamentals entering which what uh, you know on, on the horizon is uh, an expected economic slowdown. Now, I will say, you know, one of the points that I started out with, given the you know, interest rate backup that we've seen, some of the decompression that we've seen in the corporate bond space. So triple B's trading a bit wide to single A's and single A's trading a bit wide to double A's uh, relative to where we were uh, uh, maybe two months ago. Uh, we'd look to take advantage of some of that decompression. So in the short term, probably take on a bit of credit risk. But again, more than medium to long term, up in quality and a quality bias. Um, I think in some of those cyclical names like tech, banking, maybe focused more on the uh, on those single A's. But then when you get into the non-cyclicals like healthcare, utilities, consumer staples, is probably where we're going to focus on those lower credit quality names. So those, those triple B-rated names. Um, I think within the more cyclical sectors, prefer to be overweight in some of those trade-down names. So retailers uh, that are more trade-down retailers, Walmart, Dollar General, relative to some of the more luxury brands, uh, again, entering what we expected to be really an economic slowdown uh, as we get into the first quarter, at least in, in 2024. So sometimes credit markets tend to be very alpha, sometimes they tend to be beta. And, uh, you know, so it sounds like you're you're suggesting that maybe you need to be a little bit more conscientious of where value is and, and be a little bit more name specific as opposed to just, you know, getting long everything within the corporate world. Would, would that be a fair assessment of, of what you just said? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think 2022 was a very difficult year for bond picking, right? I mean, it was much more macro focused drivers on what the Fed is going to do, interest rate policy uh, projections, as well as some of the other global macro themes like Ukraine and Russia driving things. Um, And I think as we shift gears into the first six months of this year, what we found is that as uh, as that backdrop has sort of dissipated, you know, we're, we're starting to see the benefits of being more focused on bottom-up credit research, focused on fundamental drivers of individual issuers within sectors that we think will outperform other individual issuers, again, even more so as we head into probably the latter stages of this year into 2024, 
um, as we get into a, a economic slowdown. So let's then talk about a little bit about your your view on the Fed, because obviously, if you're whenever you're making a call of you know equities versus fixed income, or even fixed income within what asset classes, whether it's treasuries, mortgages, you know, corporates, which is a lot of the work that we do, you know, talk a little bit about the expectation of Aberdeen for the Federal Reserve over the coming months, because we've gone we've shifted from. The Fed's going to pause. To the Fed's not going to pause. The Fed's going to pause again. Um, you know, wh- where what do you see? And then do you see that you know with this economic slowdown coming that you mentioned maybe in the beginning of 2024, which by the way is is what we're very sympathetic to in uh, NBI rate strategy. Um, uh, do, do you then expect uh, interest rate cuts? And if so, how aggressive? Yeah, sure. I, I would. I would say that, you know, in terms of Fed policy, we certainly think we're entering the latter stages of this hike cycle. Uh, Near term, we're expecting a pause in June, Uh, probably a tone that's couched uh, at least to be neither hawkish nor dovish. Uh, But then again, I think our expectations to see at least one more hike in the second half of this year, really driven by that near term inflation stickiness and some of the strong economic data that we've seen as of late. Um, I will say that, you know, while there's much debate internally on whether, you know, to your point, this is just a pause or a pivot, uh, our base case assumption is that the worst interest rate moves are certainly behind us uh, and that recession is coming. It's just more of a question of when, as I said, our expectations, quarter one, 2024. Um I think for that reason, we're probably becoming a bit less cautious on duration positioning. You know, I don't think we want to be too overweight duration, but at the same time, we're not looking to be material short, uh, materially short either. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's a pause. But as I said, it's it's been something of much debate internally. Our economic forecast is that we see dramatic cuts in Fed funds as we get into 2024. Uh, but again, I do think that you know you go around to the individual portfolio managers, and albeit you know they're they're, they're certainly positioning inline duration or overweight duration at the moment. I think there is a, a, a healthy debate as to you know what Fed policy does post this pause, which I think is what what we're expecting. Um, so again, it, it's tough to tell how deep they're going to have, they're going to be able to cut. So last elephant in the room here, um, just last night, we're recording this on the 1st of June, 2023. And just last night, the House of Representatives voted to increase the debt limit and make some spending cuts. Um, you know, obviously, Washington does have some uh, you know, impetus on what goes on with economic activity and also within certain sectors and, you know, certainly things like student loans and and what may come out of the moratorium being lifted, if that does occur, might have an effect on the economy. You talk a little bit about how you enter, um, you know, how the D.C. political environment enters into your uh, analysis of, of markets. Yeah, sure. I mean, you could you could go back to you know the 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 COVID relief bills that were passed, and 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 you know the 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 fiscal policy that really injected money into the system that contributed to the inflation that we're going through right now, and and some of that had to do with the stopping and then the the starting of the overall economy. But yeah, 
uh, DC policy has a direct impact on economic activity. Uh, and we've seen that thus far this year, right? So changes in Social Security payments with respect to cost of living adjustments to start the year has really been a windfall for the economy thus far, uh, you know, to the tune of almost $20 billion in additional uh, monthly spend from, uh, from, 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 those, from those consumers. But I think to your point, you know, as we get through the summer months and with this latest debt ceiling uh, agreement in place and the likely roll off in the student debt moratorium again in that sort of August, September timeframe, that's going to quickly shift from a tailwind as a result of DC policy to uh, now a headwind. And I think when we look at just the sheer size of what's rolling off or what's 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 what that what that headwind is going to be there's 40 million americans with student lo loan debt outstanding pre-covid and an average monthly bill of roughly $400 so the impacts likely to be material you know we don't have a, a tremendous amount of slowdown in economic activity right now but when we look at sort of what is the catalyst or what could be the catalyst to that recession or the final sort of uh, straw that breaks the camel's back, if you will, certainly you could point to uh, the negative impact that that roll-off of the student debt moratorium is going to have as being yet another catalyst to that on top of already restrictive Fed policy, on top of um, you know tight lending conditions as a result of of, of, of bank lending, uh, you know, certainly being, uh, being, uh, tightening the screws over the last several months. So yeah, it's something that we're definitely aware of, uh, and, and is a concern to, I think, overall economic activity. Again, probably more of an early 2024 story when we see the, uh, when we see the results of that roll off though. Great. That's been Aberdeen's head of North American Fixed Income, Jonathan Mondillo. Jonathan, thanks very much for coming on Fix Focus. Ira, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.